Glad you guys can be here this this morning. Um, we have the awesome opportunity to finish the book of Ephesians this morning, and so we're all excited, meaning me, and so we're going to finish, finish that book this morning. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you go open them up, and instead of turning to Ephesians 6, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised really high, and one of the ushers will walk down the aisle and get you a copy of God's Word. Um, if this is your first time here, I'm glad you guys can be here. Um, we have been going through this series in the book of Ephesians. Um, if you missed it and you want to go back and listen to the last nine months of us talking through it, you can go online. Um, and today, though, what we're going to be able to do is give an overview of Ephesians. And so going from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. So take the whole book of Ephesians, everything we've been teaching in for the past 10 months, and I'm going to do in probably 33 minutes. And so uh, if you missed anything, again, go back and listen to it uh, online. We had a good time last, last service really walking through this book and seeing the big picture of what God is doing in and through the work of Christ. And so for the sake of um, just flow, the plan for today, again, is to go and look at each chapter at a 30,000-foot view of saying what is the overall message of Ephesians and then look at it, what does it look like for us, particularly as followers of Christ um, within our church here in Tempe. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, just pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, which illuminates the word of God that we may believe and trust and follow Christ. May the word of God shape us this morning as a, as a body, Lord, help us to hear what you have for us by the Spirit in our lives, Father. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was trying to think about what is a good way to, like, set up this, this whole overview of Ephesians as we close. And I was thinking, um, you know, people said this about Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, right? People said that Bob Dylan had his pulse, his fingers, on the pulse of their generation. And people who love Bob Dylan like, yeah, he got us. And I was thinking, who would I say that about? And I was thinking probably Tupac. Tupac had, <laughs> had his fingers on the pulse of my generation. And if you think about what, what Bob Dylan, what Tupac was able to do is communicate from the people, essentially, what was going on to tell a narrative, tell a story, and so forth. What Paul, the apostle Paul, is doing in Ephesians is he's ultimately taking the pulse of all of creation and all of culture and saying, ultimately, this is what God is doing in the world. And so he tells this song, or he writes this song, or he writes this rap with dope beats, not trap music, good music, and he writes it, he writes it to talk about this grand picture of what God is doing. And so to sum it up, what Paul says in Ephesians is that God is reconciling all things in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, in which we by faith have the opportunity through invitation and command to participate in. Okay? And so that's a mouthful. But ultimately God is, say it again, is reconciling all things in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, in which we, by invitation and command, have the opportunity to participate in. And so for us to be able to walk through these chapters, I normally don't have titles for my, my points, but since six chapters, six points, I'll have six titles. The first, ti the first one we're going to walk through is, I wonder if heaven has a ghetto, all right? Number two is, is I ain't mad at you. That's not a, that's not a typo. Uh, number three is, do for love. Number four is, Changes. Oh, let's see his racial face. <laughs> All right, number, number five is holler if you hear me. And then number six is life goes on. Um, and you guys are like, where does he get these from? I don't know, the Lord. And so, so let's, 
let's go ahead and uh, look at Ephesians. Uh, if you're with me, in Ephesians chapter 1, we'll start. So we said at the onset of this letter is that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, if you want to understand, okay, what's the context of this, is if you've got to go back and read Acts. And in the book of Acts, what you'll see is Paul came to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city. It was a trade city. It was very pluralistic, meaning it was the epicenter in the Roman Greco world of worship. Because there was multiple different gods and what people worshipped when they would go there. From, it shaped their entire life, even their economy. And when you begin to read in the book of Acts, you see that when Paul brings the gospel there, um, this gospel is not just a gospel that says that God, through his life and death of Christ, forgives us of our sins, nothing less than that, but far more than that. That this gospel brings a transformation, not just in our lives personally, but it brings transformation even in the community around us. And we begin to see what happens when people, men and women and children, and the, and the city of Ephesus begin to believe upon the gospel. It begins to turn the city upside down to the point that it began to affect their economy because people were not going to um, treat people certain ways. That it turned it upside down, that there was a riot, that they had to push Paul out of there. Well, then Paul, years later, finds himself... And as a result of proclaiming the, his faith in Christ Jesus, he finds himself in prison. And he begins to write back to certain um, cities that he had been in. And one of those cities that he writes back is to Ephesus. And so he writes the book Ephesians. Um, normally, when Paul writes, he's usually addressing particular questions that were asked um, to deal with something. In this particular letter, there's no questions that were asked. So Paul sits back and he writes this beautiful, beautiful summary of what God is doing in the world. And he does so um, within these six chapters for us to be able to understand. And the reason why we're doing it this way as an overview is because the danger sometimes is when you teach through a book, as long as we have, is that sometimes you can get individual sermons but not keep the whole message that Paul is trying to communicate to us. And so we'll be able to walk through that with these points that came out of a, a, a 90s poet um, that, that, that lived in our... In our Maybe still lives. And so we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll do that. All right. Chapter 1. Chapter 1. First, what we begin to see here is verse 10. It says, Paul says this, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, um, things in heaven and things on earth. First thing Paul lets us know is if you want to know what Ephesians is about, it is about God himself who is uniting not just some things, who's uniting not just sinners to God, but who's uniting all things to himself. People say, what does he mean by all things? Okay, in the Greek, all things mean all things, okay? And so we have this beautiful picture of what God is up to. And the reason why this, this, we say it this way to communicate it is because in our culture, all right, especially in Western society, um, because of a philosophical and intellectual thought, we have a separation of things that are spiritual and physical or secular and sacred. And so what we think is there are certain things that are spiritual, and we leave those things to be communicated in that space. Things like church, things like God, things like prayer, a lot of the things we do on a Sunday, those become spiritual things. But the 99.9% .9 of the world in which we live in, those are secular or those are physical, almost to say if God has nothing to do with those things. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. That would have not have been Paul's thought. He would have never had to think like, oh, I need to explain that there's no spiritual and no physical, or there's no, there's no sacred and there's no secular divide. He would have known that people realized that life was integrated. So when Paul begins to say he's uniting heaven and earth, he's speaking to a reality and maybe asking a question that maybe even some of you were thinking about this morning. And that is, I wonder if heaven got a ghetto. Right? Right? I know you guys were like, the pastor reads my mind. <laughs> so 
part of it is, is when you think about a ghetto, right, if I told you guys, close your eyes and describe to me what a ghetto looks like, you might describe certain things, certain people, certain broken things in a place that may not be what a true ghetto is. I want to expand from just certain neighborhoods that we may be thinking about and thinking about what a ghetto is. Years ago, probably a decade ago, I read an article, and I can't remember the guy's name who wrote it, but the premise of it was how to create a ghetto. And what he talks about is if you want to create a ghetto in a community or neighborhood or city, just remove its leaders. Remove those who are influential leaders, especially those who are young. Remove those who are creative. Like remove those who have imagination. Like remove those people and let the community just go, and eventually it's going to go to the wayside. And what happens is there'll be false leaders that will go up that will compete against other leaders, and you will have a ghetto, not because of the certain clientele of the people who live there, because there's actually no leadership. What the Bible teaches us is that when God created this world, he created it good. And what happened is when man and um, woman, when, particularly man, when he sinned, that there was now this interruption. And the interruption that happens with sin is it separated heaven and earth. And so heaven, ultimately God and, and his reign, um, we lost, and it says now through, as we read earlier, one man's sin, death reigned. So there was like this authority that was there through death that separated heaven and earth. And in this separation of heaven and earth, earth in itself becomes a ghetto because it does not have its rightful leader. And what Paul is saying is now, in and through the work of Jesus Christ, that God is coming in this world to reconcile that we may see the rightful leader who is the creator, who in spite of our sin, desires in love to move towards us to bring heaven and earth together. So yes, heaven will have a ghetto with Jesus at the head of all things. That's a paraphrase of what Paul was saying in Ephesians 1, right? That you have this reconciling of all things, and you go, okay, okay, this is a beautiful picture. God is reconciling all things, heaven and earth, but what does that mean for me and you? Like, what part do we begin to play in it? And so Paul gets into chapter 2. And then chapter 2, I'm going to read verses um, 2, verse 8 through 10 here. And it's pretty familiar verses for those of you guys who've been around church for some time. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so the first, the first point here, uniting heaven and earth, is the question or the wonder, I wonder if heaven got a ghetto. The second one is, I am mad at you, right? This is where this comes from, is that if you grew up like me or you think like me, oftentimes is when it comes to a relationship with God, if we are doing the right things, we feel like God is pleased with us. Like, like he's there, he's smiling at us, he's like, good job, that's my boy, that's my girl, right? If we're not doing what God wants us to do, we find ourselves outside of his covenant care and love, we're disobedient, that God is up there going, this ain't good, it's not going to good for you. Um, discipline is on your way, punishment is on your way. That he's not even just that, that there's this anger that he has, that like God will be mad at us because of our particular actions. Now, it could be that our view of God is that way because maybe that's the way we were parented and sadly that's the way that we still parent our children is that good things get you good smiles, bad things get you that whooping, all right? And so that, that might be it. However, when we begin to look at what Paul displays in the gospel, he says, okay, God is reconciling all things and he does not say, now you who are part of all things, you're initially included in that. He does not say that. You know Why? Because just as sin wedged a gap between heaven and earth, sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, the world's sin, all the way in Adam, it separated us from God. 
So we are not naturally into God's story. We are invited into his story. And so here's what Paul says in chapter 2. He starts off by saying that we were by nature and choice sinners, separated from God. The way we explained it back, back when we started this, that we were naughty by nature, okay? Some people were like, naughty by nature, I get it, hip-hop, hooray, hip-hop, ho. And some people just laughed because their neighbor laughed, okay? So here, here's, here's what Paul is saying. By nature and by choice, we are separated from God. But that's not the end of the story. The way we get included is what we just read, is by grace we have been saved. This is his unmerited favor in which God reaches in and extends not just a life vest, not just a lifeboat, but gives us brand new life. Right? This picture that we have here, I was talking to some high school students uh, this week at a, at a local school. Uh, Marcus and I don't know why I can't say that. I was at Marcus and High School with my people. And so here's what happened. We're talking about the gospel, going back and forth. One of the things I try to say is there's these two pictures that people will communicate of the gospel. One is that, you know, Jesus is at the door. He's knocking on the door, but he's a gentleman. He's not going to come in unless you invite him in. You are on the other side of the door, and there's a fire in the house, and you're going to die. But he's not going to just come in because he's not going to invade your life. You have to welcome him in because that's one view of the gospel. I said the other view of the gospel is that the house is on fire. There's smoke in the house. You're in the house, and you're not dying. You're dead. Jesus is on the other side. He don't wait for Jack. He kicks the door down, and he comes in, he resuscitates you, he gives you life, takes you out of the house, builds a new house, and says, this is your life in which I have given you. Which one do you think is the gospel, right? It's kind of like with the kids. Do you want to die, or do you want to live? Like the AT&T commercial. Which AT&T commercial? Which one do you want? Well, I'd rather have this one, because that's the gospel. And I know we want to have this picture of God not taking over your life, but he's not a gentleman. He's a savior. In that image, you have an image almost like a fireman. A fireman is just like, hey, let's just wait till they call. Right? No. No good fireman or woman does it. They kick the door down, but I don't want, it doesn't matter what you want. Right? It's what you need. Okay. So when Paul says, by grace you have been saved, God has given you a new life, and he's so confident in the gospel that he says you have been seated with Christ, meaning through his resurrection, as he's been raised from the dead, you are raised from the dead, and you are as good as in heaven with Christ now in his beauty, even though you still live now in your life and your brokenness. But then Paul, Paul doesn't just stop there, as we often do in the Christian church, but I'm saved by God's grace. I'm forgiven of my sins, past, present, and future, which is beautiful. He goes further to say that that salvation, it was to participate in a bigger salvation. Your story does not end on itself. It's to participate in a bigger story. And he says this, that you were saved for a purpose. So it's not just the privilege of salvation, but it's also the purpose. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with him, walk in them. So God is saving us. And has reconciled us to himself. But he's also even, be, even foreordained certain things that we should step into and that we would be able to be a display of what he's like. And this, this beautiful picture, he says that we are his workmanship. And we, we talked about this weeks and weeks and weeks and months ago. But the word workmanship is the Greek word poema. is where we get the word rap. And so what you have, you have, you have this, this holy hip-hop, um, right, of Paul, of Paul saying that you are Christ's workmanship, literally, and that's not individual. 
Sometimes look at it, you and you, and it's like, no, the people of God together, taking the gifts and talents of which God has saved them from the penalty of sin, raised them up in the resurrection, that now we are to take the goodness of who God is, and we're supposed to put his glory on display in the places in which we work, and the relationships in which we find ourselves in, and the schools in which we attend, and the neighborhoods in which we live, the life in which we live, not just in this city, but throughout the world, that we take this gospel of Jesus Christ, of him reconciling all things and us to himself, and we use it in a way to be a display on what God is like, and what he is up to, and what he's doing in the world. Amen? So, so you think about this. Think about artists. Artists really, really get this. Um, there's a gal at our church, and I don't want to say her name because I didn't ask her if I can use this story, but I'm going to say it anyway, and if you guys know her, go, I know who you're talking about. And so um, it's a good story. We had, so in our lobby, we have art. I don't know if you guys ever noticed that. And um, sometimes people say, does the art, like, coincide with the sermon? Usually not. Um, it's just beautiful. Sometimes you just need beauty. In fact, Ray Baki, who's done inner city ministry for 40-plus years, he says every church, especially in the inner city, should have an art ministry because the poor need beauty as much as they need food because they see so much and experience so much brokenness, right? And so we have that. And there was a gal, a bunch of really good artists in this church, but this particular gal, I would look at this art every Sunday when I walked in and go, gosh, I really like this. And what she did is she went around Tempe and she picked up all of the trash and the rubbish and recycled things, and then she pulled it together and then she created like pictures of the Tempe Town Lake, downtown Tempe. And it was all made out of the things in which people wasted in our city. Right? And I can't think of a more beautiful picture of what God is like and what God is up to than to be able to take the things in which the world has laid bare and thrown to the side, and which sin has laid bare and thrown to the side, but now in his grace and the creativity of his grace and his love, that he picks up the pieces and, and plots of our particular story and he puts them together as, as a display to show the world what he is like. like that, that, he's saying you are his workmanship, that now God is still working through a people, primarily the church, to show the rest of the world what he is like so that people might be able to participate in the same experience that we have through the love of Jesus. Amen? So Paul says you are his workmanship. And then what happens is if we get there as a church, like even when we get to the point where we talk about his workmanship, we don't take the workmanship to the, the rest of chapter 2. The rest of the chapter 2 seems like something else that maybe if you get to it, it's great. When really the rest of chapter 2 is the outflowing of the gospel of itself. Paul says this in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. For he himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Paul uses this we and you and us language, and what he's talking about is that God, especially in the Old Testament, began his plan of renewal and redemption through the people of God, the people of Israel. And that there were certain ordinances, things that most people outside of the covenant community could not experience the life of God. But he's saying now those things have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And so now those, the we and us and you, there's no barrier now because in his body he has broken that down and he's taken two particular groups, primarily Jews and Gentiles, and now in his body and his resurrection he's made one and he's made one new man. And he says this is an outflow of understanding the whole idea that you were separated from God, you were naughty by nature, you were chosen in his grace, you were raised and seated in the heavenly places. There's work that he has for you to step into. To, and part of that work is actually to be one with your brother and sister who comes on the other side of the railroad tracks than you. 
the per your brother and sister that economically is different than you, that politically is different than you, that is politically different than you. It's amazing to me how people in church go, I can't believe there are these sort of people in church. And these people are going, I can't believe there's these type of people in church. And I'm like, have you ever read the gospel? Have you ever believed in the gospel in such a way that these and those and them, they're all us? And that that in itself begins to be this beautiful picture of the gospel to the world around us. Because it cannot be. Because when Paul says here, a, a, a direct result of the gospel is that there's a new society. When he says one new man, it literally means a new society amongst the society in which we live. We take too many of our keys from the society around us and we try to put the gospel in it instead of taking the keys from the gospel and putting it into our society. Like, that, that's the new man. That's this new man and woman in Christ. And when he says that there's oneness, it doesn't mean that there's sameness. If you are a woman in Christ, you are still a woman in Christ. If you are a man in Christ, you're still a man in Christ. If you are a child in Christ, you are a child in Christ. But begin to reflect those differences in the light and love of Jesus to be a display to the world around us. And even in our sin, we realize God's saying, I ain't mad at you. All right? Right? I wonder if heaven got a ghetto. I ain't mad at you. And then number three here. Put it on the screen there. Do for love. I forgot that one because I, I had another title there that just didn't fit. I don't want you going to Google the lyrics. Uh, so, so. <laughs> Do for love. Okay, so chapter 3, when we get into the chapter 3, I want you to particularly look at chapter 3, verse 10. All right? So Paul's got this new society, this new community, and then he says what God's doing through this community. Verse 10, he says, so, meaning the reason why he's doing this in his ministry, he says, so that through the church, that's the people of God, the manifold wisdom of God might be, might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is a verse that we just fly over. What Paul is saying is, as he's reconciling all things, as he's reconciling God to man and man to God and then man to each other, that when we live in this new society, that he now is showing not just people, but the principalities and authorities, right? Those are the political, ideological structures in our culture and world, oftentimes that are influenced demonically, as we talked about in chapter 6, meaning the way that the unseen world is beginning to peer into and look at what God is like, they're actually looking at us. That in some way, God is taking these jars of clay, <laughs> these like styrofoam cups, and he's, pour he's pouring out his wisdom and his blessing as we live as the people of God. So sometimes people say, what are we as the church? In light of God's plan, are we just to be obedient? Yes, but it's for a purpose. And that purpose in itself is we are a display. We are the city on the hill. We are the light and darkness, that we are the salt. And these things are not, not so much what's in ourselves. It's just as we follow Jesus in our respective areas. He says the church shows the manifold wisdom. The word manifold means multifaceted, meaning it's not going to look the same, but it's going to derive its life and its purposes and its meaning from our Savior and Christ Jesus as we live out loud um, in the culture displaying the light and love of Jesus. And we do so out of the love of God. We do so because we've been filled with the love of God. We do so because in God's love, he's given us the life of Christ to be able to live together. And so chapter 3 shows this beautiful picture. Now, what you have now in Ephesians is Paul does kind of take, there's two halves of this book. He takes chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, which tells this gospel narrative, and it begins with chapter 3 showing what it does in our life. 
In chapter 4, 5, and 6, Paul goes, okay, if you believed upon this gospel, if you, by invitation and command, are participating in this gospel, here's what it begins to look like. So not only is it the gospel something now that we begin to just accept, but there's a way in which it shapes its life. And so the fourth thing is, not just do for love, the fourth point is changes. Changes. Good song. Good song. All right? So what we have here is, if, is chapter 4, particularly in verse 1. Paul says, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling into which you have been called. Paul is talking to people saying, if you believe this, if you believe that Christ is reconciling heaven and earth, if you believe, as we sing, that we've been saved by amazing grace, if you believe that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ and we are to participate in this new world, if you are participating in it, meaning if the Spirit of God is in you, in essence, if you are a Christian, live like it. <laughs> He's saying that live in it. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. He's not saying walk in a manner worthy like you got to prove it. He's just saying there's some things that would happen if you're in this right relationship with, with God. Okay, so in this chapter, Paul begins to use the language after Christ gives the body, church, um, the body of believers gifts. And he gives us these diverse gifts that we can be together and equip the body. And he says, now when the body of Christ is equipped and it lives on its mission, on God's mission, there's certain things we got to do. And he used the language of put on and put off, clothing. And I use one of my favorite stories because it's a real story and it happened and it's true. Is when Holly and I first got married... You know, when you date people, you don't give them all of who you really are. You give them just enough to, uh, to trick them. And then, because then once you get married, you're like, you're in this. I can't go anywhere. You can't go anywhere. We're going to have to figure this out. Doors are locked. All right? And so part of it is not only you just not give yourself, you, you don't say things about the other person that, that you think would ruin the relationship. Like, you tell them good things like, I love you, things like that. You tell them the truth. But there's certain things that may, like, like, annoy you or things you don't like, something about the way they eat or something like that. You may not say anything like, hey, you know what? The, the keys ain't been thrown away yet. Wait till the keys get thrown away. Then I'm going to, okay, I'm going to say that. So for us, it came with like certain clothing. And so one morning, we were uh, getting ready, and then Holly was about to put on these overalls that she used to wear. And um, for me, I didn't think that grown women should be wearing overalls. All right? Now hear me, hear me. Don't be like, oh, I can't believe this man going to get a, listen, listen, okay? <laughs> listen, <laughs> listen. This is my household, my choice, my preference. She could have said, uh-uh, I'm a grown woman. I wear what I want to wear. And I'd have let her do what she do. She's an I-M-P, you know the deal, D-E-M-P, all of that. But out of love, I was just like, hey, you know what, if you, you know, like, I don't, this is not like I want to, I think overalls are good for young girls and pregnant women. But like not, <laughs> like, and like, then, again, my opinion, this is not gospel. This is not even from Jesus. This is straight out of Ricardo's, you know, thoughts, who, by the way, is wrong a lot. So anyways, um, she's like, all right, cool. You know, for you, I'll do that. I'll do that because that's how she talks. And then she goes, let's go look at your closet. And then she pulled out this shirt. And it was this Mark Echo shirt that I thought was dope. And, and it, you know, and she goes, look at this shirt. I'm like, look at it. She goes, you wear this a lot. Yes, I do. And she goes, there's a rhino on this shirt. It's a huge rhino. She goes, grown men shouldn't have animals on their shirt. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Now when you say it like that, you know, like a, the whole time I thought it was it's just the logo, man. It looks kind of dope. Now she's telling me I got like a, sh a shirt that looks like animal crackers. Now I'm like, I can't wear this shirt, right? There are certain things we said you got to put off, put on, put on, put off, right? That same picture Paul begins to use. He says there were certain things you used to wear. You got to put those things off 
and now there's things you receive now in Christ. Because the reality of it is there were certain things I used to wear. My wife was like, oh, heck to the no. But she doesn't snap. Um, and, and, you know, since then, you know, she puts on, she gives me the clothes. And so now you have this picture of God saying, put off and let him give you things. And chapter 4 says these are the changes. You used to present your false self. Now you present your true self, even in all its brokenness to the community around you because you're so loved and accepted in Christ that you can live into it. You used to gossip and slander and use your words to lie and tear people down. But now God's given you the ability to be able to encourage people and build people up with your words. That you used to think about number one or look after number one because you were believing the narrative of this culture that no one's for you. But now that God has been for you, you don't use all your resources to hoard your money or even to, to steal, but you use your talents and your gifts and so forth to actually be generous to those around you. That there, there is this, this picture he's saying there's a new life that you have because of the way the gospel is invading your life as an individual and as a community that you begin to look like, that you begin to step into. And these changes are necessary not to receive Christ. These changes are inevitable because you've already received them. So it's not something we do and look up to the Lord and say, now will you accept me? We're going, no, we're already accepted in love, and now we do. Because we do it out of the relationship that we have with him. So these are these particular changes that we have and that we live into. So the next point, not just changes. The next one is holler if you hear me. You know what? And that shouldn't even be an ER. It should be an A. Holler if you hear me, right? And this is chapter 5. This is chapter 5. And if you don't know what holler if you hear me is, let me just explain this to you. Holler if you hear me is, you, we're living in a community together. We see certain things, and there's a call and response nature that happens to it. That when we, when we see something that we love or something that's ill, you go, do you hear me? I'm going to holler if I hear you. And we live in such a way because of the context of the community we have. You say, Ricardo, what does Paul have to say about that? And let me just tell you. So chapter 5, verse 1, he says, therefore, be imitators of God. Oh, sorry, guys. Back up. Let's go back. Because I missed over a part that if I don't deal with, oh my goodness, I'm going to get some emails. So back to changes. We haven't completely changed yet. Um, so back to changes. When it comes to the latter part of chapter 4 and then leading into now, no, dang it. Guys, we're on holler if you hear me. <laughs> I never get confused with my notes because I don't usually have any. But now I just got confused because I don't have any. So we have, <laughs> we have <laughs> chapter 5. Chapter 5, like I was saying, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a, fragrant, uh, as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So he says here, be imitators of God. And what we said here when we go back to it, being imitators of God is that you begin to be like and become in a lot of ways the people who you hang out with. I don't care who you are, you say, no, I'm just me. Okay, you're just you, but in context of the community that raised you and the community that you're in, right? And if you don't get it, ask the people outside of your community, do you act like, look like, dress like, say things like the community in? And you might say no, they'll be like, oh, yeah, no, you, you, yeah, that's your people, right? And so you have this sense of imitating. Now, part of it is you imitate the relationships that are most intimate to you, right? We say it this way, more things are caught than taught. And the best way to see it, is kids and their parents. One of my favorite stories is we have some friends, they were over, and I'm watching the little daughter walk, and I'm like, she walks just like you. Mom's like, you think so? You think I walk like that? No, 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 I don't think that. I know that, right? We're watching this, you walk. And then the father goes, oh, check out this video. And it shows the little girl running, like, oh, just kind of like goofy and everything. I was like, that's cute. He goes, now watch this. And it was the wife running right next to her. 
And I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> like, you do realize that you guys are doing the exact same things. And you can laugh at it, especially if you're not a parent, because you think that that won't happen to you. It happens. There are certain things that come out of my mouth that I didn't script, that I didn't practice, that I thought I would never say, and they just come out. You know why? Because my mom and my dad said them to me my whole life, and then when my kids trigger me, if I can use that word, um, to a certain way, what comes out is whatever was put in years ago. And I'm like, how did that come out of there? Because it's in you, right? Those were valuable relationships. My mom used to say stuff that I still don't get, right? My mom, first of all, she's from the South, and so all sorts of say, she used to say, oh, boy, you, you must not mean, you, you must not believe fat meat is greasy. And I'm like, Right? And when you're 9 or 10, you're like, yes, ma'am. Right? And I remember one time going, fat meat is greasy. She goes, okay, meat in itself, uncooked, it's fat and it's greasy. Right? Right? So fat meat is greasy. When I told you, if you go out of this house when I'm not here and I find out, you're going to get a whooping. <laughs> and you did. So you must not believe that when you go out this house that you're going to get a whooping. You must not believe fat meat is greasy. And I'm like, it's greasy. Right? <laughs> So there's, there's, there, there, there's a sense you just catch these things because they're your relationship. It's who you spend time with. What Paul says, be imitators of God. That when you've been able to see and experience the things of the Father, this is not just activity. This is just his presence. That you as a people, as a person, as a community begin to experience the life and love of the Father. There is a holler if you hear me moment. The reason why there's a call and response into the people of God, because there's something that connects us together more than just our upbringing and our environments, but our Father, who's the Father of all in Christ Jesus. That when we begin to experience his presence, of course there's some do's and of course there's some don'ts. Namely, namely what we like to do is go, we say imitators of God, and then Paul lists the list of things we should do and the list of things we shouldn't do. And those lists are there to inform us, but those lists are not there to draw us to being like Christ or to being like our Father. It's actually time spent with the Father that more things are caught than taught. The goal is not just to mimic him to look like a good child. The goal is to be loved by him, and that's what it means to be a good child. It's to do and see what you've done and you've seen. Your Father do. And so when you're in that right relationship with him, you're able to know what not to do. You're able to know what you ought to do. Not because of the rules and the lines. No, because of the relationship in which you have from the Father. And we communicate that same love together and say, I can holler if you hear me because I'm seeing something of my Father, and it's beautiful, and it's good. And though your background may be wildly different than my background, man, we come together in the name of Christ, ultimately, who's given us his Father as our Father. So the, the picture that he says that, and he says, that's not it. Paul says this imitating of God is not just individual. It begins to show itself in the one area in the Roman Greco world which they believed that transformation was brought out by, and that was the household. The household, the Roman Greco world, and I'm doing this as a triangle because that's exactly what it looked like in the Roman Greco world. They believed that household was able to bring about change in the society. Well, Paul says, no, no, we now come under the full submission of the father, and it shapes this triangle which had the father at the top, and then the wife, and then it had slaves, and then it had kids, and so forth. And Paul says, as we imitate the Father in right relationship with him through the grace that's been extended to us, now we enter this relationship. And you take, you take the submission, one, submitting to one another. And that now you have a, a husband who now is called to be the head of his family. And not the head in the way where he gets what he wants. He gets to get the, uh, the, the remote and put it on whatever channel he wants it on. He gets to pick the color of the car. He gets the big piece of chicken. Like, that's not, that's not it at all, Right? 
In fact, because he's calling him now and imitating Christ and begin to um, imitate the father, that he's actually now supposed to lay down his life for his wife. Baby, what do you want to watch? You want to watch that? Girl, I'll watch that. I don't even want this chicken. Girl, what you want, girl? <laughs> right? That's whatever you want. Boo, I got you. You got me, I got you. We're going to ride or die to the end of this. Right? That's paraphrasing what Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 5. <laughs> then you take the woman, and the woman is saying, listen, I think you got some serious issues, boy. And you are broken, and you are not a savior, but because of my savior, who I'm submitting to, now I will understandably, in light of who he is, fall under your leadership, even though it's flawed, but his is perfect, and we're going to be together. We're going to do this like some Bonnie and Clyde type stuff, right? And so that, again, paraphrase, that that right relationship together now is not about who can usurp who, but who can actually mostly serve and resemble more like their father who loves them in Christ. And the same thing flows into the children. That we look at our children not as this weird extensions of who we could have been or what we did not become. But as people who are creating the image of God and seeing what is God doing in their life. And the way we're going to know is as we introduce them Jesus. And the most important thing that could be introduced to them is not their nutritional health or even their choices of school, though valid. But more importantly is who Christ is and who they are in Christ. And let the Lord do what he's going to do in their life. That we don't sit there and play controller. We say parent and we point to our daddy who's in heaven and say, Lord, these are your children. Do as you please. As scary as that may be. And then we have slaves and masters or employers and employees and saying, listen, you guys are co-image bearers now imitating the love of Christ. Why don't you show a certain way of respect and mutuality and love that reflects the love of Christ? And so Paul says that love begins to change all things. And when you get that, you say something like, holly if you hear me because that's what I want. Because the way that it is in this culture it's not like that. And lastly, um, life goes on. Life goes on is that there's a continuation of this story of God. And in chapter 6, Paul says it this way, verse t- chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul begins to talk about the spiritual warfare in which we've talked about the last two weeks. That, yes, God is uniting all things, and even man to God, and even man to man, And yes, there's a display of who he is in the world. And yes, there are these necessary changes that are happening in our life as we imitate God. And as we go about doing that in our life, there is spiritual warfare, there's brokenness, and there's pushback. And the only strength that we have is not a strength that comes from within, but a strength that comes from without, that's namely in the Lord. That is, we live for him, and that we live to him, and that we praise God in every single thing that we do. And to conclude, Paul says this, last few verses of this chapter. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all saints. And also for me, that the words may be given to me and open to my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am, how I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to you, the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. Paul, in chapter 6, closes this thing with the very habits in which we need to live into this narrative in which God has given us. And there's simple, simple, simple habits that conclude with prayer and praying without ceasing. The word of God being able to be shaped by the scripture and community. And that means community. That means relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. So praying at all times, 
understanding God's word that shapes us, that we have the true narrative instead of being shaped by the culture around us and living lives out loud with the people in community. And that's how we participate in what God is doing and redeeming and restoring all things in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf in which we enter into and participate in by invitation and command to participate in God's grand plan of redemption. Amen? All right. Ephesians. Not in 32 minutes, but good enough. All right. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you, Lord, for the great grace in which you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the call on our lives to be in you and to be in this blessed union that we have with Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have given us a righteousness that is not our own, that you have given an extended grace and faith which comes from you, that you've given us a community of people, Lord, that are made up with people that are not, that are not like us, Lord, economically, politically, ethnically, even in our very bodies, God, and yet somehow you've called us to be one. Help us to step into that and live into that, Lord, and help us to make the necessary changes through the Holy Spirit in which you've given us, Lord. God, I pray that your word will wash over us and that the book of Ephesians will continue to shape our lives until you come and redeem and restore all things fully. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.